Okay, welcome to first episode of Unscripted. These are just chats between people on Discord. I am Midnight. I'll be the host of most of these. Uh, I'm an atheist. My guest is a theist. We are just discussing the problem of evil. And I want to just jump straight into it so we're not wasting too much time. Would you like to introduce yourself, Seven? Yeah. Hi. So, yeah, me and Midnight have prefaced this topic quite a a bit. Uh, I want to say we'll we'll try to do extensively here, um, but we've talked about uh, different angles to approach this problem from on both the theistic and atheistic ends. Um, we've talked about different professional philosophers and different religious thinkers and different even lay thinkers um, and what th their responses have historically been. So we've definitely have a little bit of background. Um, I'm come from a uh, Roman Catholic perspective. Um, I believe that. The church is has not only contemporarily failed in education, but also in evangelization, which is why we have a one to six point five ratio of of um, people entering into the mm -hmm. church and people leaving, um, with a six point five leaving. So, I believe in talking to people, uh, believers, non-believers, getting the word of God out there, and um, diving right deep into um, the most historically uh, controversial. Topics on theism, God's existence, mm -hmm. uh, different theological concepts, philosophical concepts, etc. So yeah, I appreciate Midnight for hosting this and for um, having so, this conversation. So on my end, right, I the existence of God. I'm I'm an atheist, so I'm, it's not like I go about my life thinking about God too much. I really don't. However, this is one of those things that when you're sitting down and thinking about philosophy, one of those first chapters in any good philosophy text is metaphysics. And the existence of things and well the existence of uh, god is indeed a question in metaphysics so this becomes a fun chat to have for me and a key argument and it's been sometimes it was called the rock of atheism is the problem of evil it's how exactly there's um you know particularly a monotheistic god but its properties work with the existence of evil and this plays into that metaphysical thing i was just saying a moment ago where this leads for an atheist to the conclusion that a god does not exist a metaphysical claim but ramifications for uh epistemology and morality so um i think i should start here by leading the cl uh, classic argument the classic argument is really one given by david hume uh, an enlightenment philosopher big guy uh defining a whole bunch of different things that we use true to this day. The uh, way he says it is sort of like, uh, goes as follows. Um, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? And it's all rhetorical. Then is he impotent? Is he able, but not willing? Then is he malevolent? Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? And just the line of question here is, if God has the properties of omnipotence and omniscience and is wholly good, why do you observe evil? And that we observe evil suggests that God simply doesn't exist. Uh, and so I'll let Seven start yeah, to respond to that. Yeah, and this is basically the, the formulation here. Um, by omnipotence, omniscience, and uh, omnibenevolence, if, if someone is you know listening and not aware of what that is, it's, it means that, that there are uh, characteristics or attributes of God classically in theism, uh, which is omnipotence being all-powerful, omniscience being all-knowing, and omnibenevolent being all-loving, all-good, etc. And that um, th these are essential to God's nature and and. Um, just like any um, anything which has a nature, it cannot act outside of its nature. It's limited to the scope of its own nature. And so the logical problem that Hume and famously other 
uh, atheistic philosophers and critics have brought up is, well, if God cannot act, act outside of his nature and we experience evil and suffering in the world, then it seems as though, uh, you know, it's logically consistent that God does not exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't see these things. They wouldn't be permitted or enabled, right? So I think that's the, the general outline. Um, and th- there really is a, a lot of ways to approach this. I think from the logical end, um, and, and me and Midnight go back, back and forth a little bit on this, <clears throat> and we can certainly expound upon it, but I, I personally believe the logical problem of evil has largely been dealt with. Um, I think it's, it's on the surface more of an emotional um, appeal to um, to, to, to one's, to, to one's uh, worldview, right? Like, if I am to trying to, on the surface, address my own worldview, and I say, well, evil and suffering exist, God permits it, it seems as though he's able to, um, you know, he's all-powerful, and so that he can not allow evil and suffering to persist. He's all-knowing, so he would know of the nature of evil and suffering, <clears throat> and then he's all loving, so he wouldn't want others to suffer, right, or to experience evil things. And so, I think on the surface, it's it does seem, uh, it does seem like a good argument. But again, I think uh, as we kind of scratch past the surface, um, the logical problem of evil becomes an emotional one that one can easily delve into and I, um, take I apart. I would actually so. insist that it is a good argument. Only that what's largely seemed to have happened is that. Um, in response to the problem of evil, we have thinkers ranging from Plantinga and onwards, Plantinga being the classic guy, but we have many others who've written various approaches in which uh, what appears to be a logical problem has a way out. There's, there's something uh, implied or entailed here that doesn't give the contradiction it seems to give. Um, would you, I'm posing it to you then, yeah. do you have a preferred one that you you take as a kind of answer or address well, to this. You did mention Plantinga, so I certainly can go into Plantinga's. Uh, Alvin Plantinga is a, uh, a professional philosopher, and he's uh, a philosopher, or sorry, professional philosopher in religion, that is. And he's especially at the camp of Reformed epistemology. He's a uh, Protestant uh, reformer in his faith, and he takes a Reformed epistemological approach to um, apologetics and philosophy of religion as a Christian. So um, I can certainly touch on that. I did want to just, before I do that, um, really quickly mention that this problem um, actually predates Mm -hmm. Hume, although I think the modern formulation closely does relate mostly to Hume. For example, Augustine and of the earliest Christian fathers of the patristic period, it's called, which is post 200 AD, that's called the patristic era in the church. And Augustine was a part of that tradition in the very early church. <clears throat> and he actually talked on um, evil and, and, and suffering and how, <clears throat> in the context of original sin, and how this damages the body, the soul, the mind, etc. Um, and then you have Aquinas in the uh, 13th and 14th century who goes even deeper in tackling this problem. Um, and as some theologian, he goes extensively into what the nature of evil is, um, how it comes about, is it, um, is it of God's working, is it, of God's, is it the privation of God's goodness, um, does the will have, does the will seek to um, uh, uh, bring about evil and suffering? So he, he, Aquinas goes extensively into this topic, 
um, and, and definitely does give a lot of uh, great answers, which the church would argue today. But I want to focus right now on Plantinga's free will defense, and it goes basically something like this. Um, it's impossible for God to ensure that we never use our freedom to bring about evil. So that would be like the first premise, if you will. God is responsible for the beings which possess free will and of their surroundings, meaning he is responsible for the creation of creatures with that possess a freedom of the will and for their surroundings, their environment, the, uh, the natural world. Uh, premise three, God couldn't create a world which contained both beings which possess free will and no evil. Premise four, it may be that a world with free will and evil is more valuable than a world without freedom nor evil. So basically what we're getting at here is it, it, it seems, and, and this, goes, this definitely goes into what Plantinga calls, uh, calls trans-world depravity, um, which basically states that it is possible that given free will, any being which possesses freedom will use it in the wrong way at least once. At least once. So given God's priority of creating creatures with a free will as seen as a good thing, Given that free will and given God's uh, unwillingness to coerce upon that free will, it is possible that every creature which possesses a freedom of the will will use it for wrong at least once. And what this really comes down to is <clears throat> that God's not responsible for our free decisions which bring about suffering and evil in the world. Rather, he's responsible for our surroundings and for our own creation. And so this is basically an outline of Plantica's free will defense, which seeks to eliminate the uh, specifically the logical problem of evil that it, it that it uh, that that perceiving evil and suffering in the world uh, disproves God's existence. So he he approaches this from a uh, from a free will perspective, if you will, and, and gives an outline of theodicy that would show um, that evil and suffering is actually compatible with a natural creation and creatures with a freedom of the will. Yep. So I don't know. I, do you want to give a response to that? That's basically that's the basic mm -hmm. outline. Of the only issue I ever have with Santinga, right, is that it seems to rest on libertarian free will, right? Uh, and that's kind of core to its function. So what happens is you have your problem evil, but what's added is that you have libertarian free will. For libertarian free will to function, omniscient, uh, omnipotence or omniscience, one of those two, has to be just notched down a fraction. Otherwise, you can't really have libertarian free will. You can have compatibilist free will, and you can have hard determinism. Those function just fine. But what essentially this is, and I think this year, I think Tantinga's response to me really earmarks the other responses to come. There's a sense in which you detect that there's something more important about free will than. Um, say, having all actors do morally good things. The, the, the ability to choose between doing good and bad things is more important than having everyone choose to do the good thing. Which is interesting, because there's, for me, year market responses to come. The, this response, though, was the response that causes the logical problem of evil to be somewhat weakened. As long as you accept that, um, say, God can't create a part of a world that allows they say compatibilist and uh or, or hard determined that god has to create this libertarian free will world then then i think this is a fair response though i don't know 
I wonder sometimes because it feels like a lot of people are compatibilists, like libertarian free will people. Me at this defense isn't good for them. It's good for those who uh, use that form of free will. Uh, I, w I wouldn't necessarily say that Plantinga commits himself to libertarian free will here because he does mention and talk about <clears throat> that God's not just responsible for creatures with a freedom of the will, but also their surroundings. So he does, um, he does, he does put emphasis on the fact that there is a world which God creates, which has physical laws, which has you know physical constants, which has determining features. In the sense that, like you know, when I'm sitting down right now. It is gravity which is keeping me here. So in, in the truest sense, um, you know, I, I am limited in my own freedom, not just by physical laws, but also by, you know, um, I would argue that the will is oriented towards the good. And so when we seek out God, because of the influence um, and the intimate relationship that comes about as a consequence of establishing a relationship with God, um, that the that the that the power of the Holy Spirit makes it difficult to reject His grace. Um, mm -hmm. This does get a bit into um, uh, theology, so we can certainly stick to this argument. But I, yeah. I would say that I don't think Plantinga necessarily commits himself to libertarian free will, given that God is also responsible for our surroundings, and that there are deterministic features of our surroundings, such as um, again, uh, the fact that we uh, that that our will in seeking out God and God's goodness and His grace does influence and impact our free choices that we make and orients us our free choices towards the good. So there certainly are these more compatibilist features um, that hmm. that that would mitigate so, a complete libertarian freedom of the will. What I'm trying to highlight is the idea that. It's if you had two worlds, one libertarian and one compatibilist. In a compatibilist world, because of the nature of compatibilism, it's possible for all actors that have their actions always end up good. Because in this in a in a compatibilist in a compatibilist frame, what we are say what we mean by free will it can coexist with determinism. That coexistence means that it is completely possible now for a god to actually eliminate evil and have free will. It's only under libertarianism, a uh, libertarian free will rather, that it is impossible to eliminate evil and retain free will. It's the only conception of free will under which that issue occurs. But if the moment you allow any form of compatibilism, it, this uh, fortifies the problem, recreates it. And it's for this reason that we um, get advanced uh, answers, because there are answers in which some degree of compatibilist uh, compatibilism regarding human free will um, is being applied rather than like a libertarian free will. Ooh. Why do you say that is? I, I'm curious because again, I'll I'll, re, I'll rephrase the. I'm um, oh, sorry, not rephrase. I'll I'll, I'll mention again the oh, uh, point on transworld so, depravity. So, according to transworld depravity, it's possible that given free will, mm -hmm. any being which possesses freedom will use it in the wrong way at least once. How, how is that exclusive so, to libertarian freedom of the world? No, it's not exclusive. Plantinga uses libertarian free will. It's one of these, like, it's a commitment, but it's very slight. Uh, so this creates different... So for our audience, the, the two positions being compared here. 
libertarian free will is free will that is completely incompatible with any form of determinism. You cannot have it run together. Right. Uh, the, re the problem being that if you have any form of determinism in play when you have libertarian free will, that determinism skews that free will such that it's not kind of complete. It's like a, a weaker form. Uh, compatibilism is the argument that there is in fact determinism and free will can't be understood in that libertarian sense. Free will must be reconstructed in the light of there being uh, inputs, say, to us as humans that determine our actions to some degree, um, which then etches into moral responsibility and so on, which is its own discussion right. for some other day. Pantinga, though, and the point of the free will defense is, that, is only that if God wanted us to have free will, then the nature of free will is such that it's now impossible for God to then construct a world that, uh, in which you have free will and only ever commit good actions. That's under libertarian free will. Where under compatibilist view, that would be possible. I, I don't think that's true. And actually, in in Plantinga's uh, works, he actually does mention this. He he mentions the point that, um, he he kind of answers it as an objection, right? Like it's been posed to Plantinga after. Um, his initial free will defense that it's possible that God can create hmm. um, a world with both no moral evil and free will, meaning like God can alter the conditions of the world in which he creates so that people will freely only do what's good or that God will only create people who will make the free decisions to only do what's good. And you have to understand that trans world depravity, this concept that plants the coins, doesn't come, it's not a part of the free will defense. It actually comes after the free will defense in response to what you're saying tonight. So he says, if it's possible that given free will, and he's not just referring to a libertarian here, that any being which possesses freedom will use it in the wrong way at least once. So basically he's saying under compatibilism or libertarian freedom of the will, it's impossible is what he's saying for God to create a world um, which given free will um, either libertarian or compatibilism. Um, that because again, I think compatibilism can fall under the guidance and influence of God's grace. If we consider that compatibilist, which I think Aquinas and other thinkers do, then I wouldn't argue. And maybe maybe Plantinga is a libertarian. Uh, maybe he does advocate for libertarian free will, but I don't think this argument in particular is exclusive to it, because the trans world depravity follow up is a response to both the objection of it's possible that God can create creatures that only freely choose to do good or that God can alter the conditions of the universe where so, people only freely do what's right. And he says, it's, if, if it's possible, and that's long-winded, but again, I want to emphasize mm -hmm. this. He says, if it's at least possible that given free will, both under the compatibilist and the freedom, uh, libertarian free will view, in which, a, in which any being possesses freedom, it will use it in the wrong way at least once. I think that so, possibility in of itself destroys these two objections. I think that what's happening here is, I, I'm aware of trans-world depravity, but trans-world depravity only actually applies to libertarian free will. Never actually applies to compatibilism. Only that the nature of compatibilism permits of soft determinism. And then soft determinism when combined with an omniscient, omnipotent being allows for a situation which is bizarre and unintuitive of free will except all axes continuously choose good outcomes. A better way of uh, stating this is simply um, to quote Leibniz, uh, a planting uh, rather about Leibniz. So 
uh, I have a quote here, and it's just, uh, Platinka accuses the compatibilist view of committing Leibniz's lapse because it mistakenly assumes that God can bring about any logic about any logically possible world, including a world in which libertarian free creatures are determined to always do what is right. Right? Plantinga is actually quite careful in right. his wording. He's right. only actually ever considering free will in a libertarian frame because the compatibilist frame is actually one in which he's aware would cause issues, but he would argue that his transible example demonstrates that when we say compatibilism, it's actually incorrect. Right? If you're talking about real free will, then real free will actually will always entail the capacity so, uh, to at least commit evil. The, like the possibility I would at, at this least point be there. we're mostly getting into semantics. Mm -hmm. Like when I when I uh, when I explained like Aquinas's view on um, this issue on freedom of the will versus determinism, like Aquinas obviously never like you know assigned himself a label. But and it is debated whether Aquinas was a libertarian free free will defender or whether he believed in more compatibilism. And uh, honestly, uh, most of the uh, Thomist scholars today do lean more towards in their commentary of Aquinas more towards compatibilism. But it's not what you're espousing um, here or what you're trying to say, which is like soft determinism. It's more what I was expressing, which is that God's grace uh, guides and influences our actions. And that also the world in which God created has mm -hmm. good inside of it. And so therefore, when we seek the good with our will, uh, we're seeking God in that instance. We can also see goodness through the world. And therefore, that also influences and guides our actions. So it's, it's a different view mm -hmm. from what but we're, we're really it's in a semantical dispute of over our different ideas of compatibilism here, right? It's um okay, maybe yeah, maybe there's different senses in which it's being applied. So uh, let me try uh, rephrase this a little bit better. Sure. Matt, there's what we can call, for sake of discussion, Mackey's compatibilism. Mackey's mm -hmm. compatibilism is the statement that free will and uh, you, it's possible, it's logically possible to create a yeah. world in which there is both free will. Yep. yet no moral evil occurs. Plantiga's argument is that is absurd. No such compatibilism is ever possible. Right. Free will will mean that there is the possibility, not that everyone will commit evil, That's right. just that there is the possibility for you to commit evil, meaning that when we're talking about this, these are um, a, this is this is metaphysics. It's, a, it's the a modal stuff argument. Here, right? That's exactly what it is. Plantinga is getting into modality here. Um, He's saying if it's possible, it, 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 uh, we won't we, we won't yeah. really touch on this in this discussion, but. Plantinga does also famously offer the ontological argument mm -hmm. for God's existence using maximal properties. Yeah. And I think Plantinga would take this one step further and say, if it's possible that given free will, any being which possesses freedom will use it in the wrong way at least once, mm -hmm. if it's possible. If we're looking at possible worlds, meaning like yeah. if, in all, if, in, if in all worlds it's possible that um, you know, this creature of freedom of the will will use it for wrong at least once, then it's possible um, in the actual world, yeah. or sorry, then it's if it's possible in all possible worlds, then it's possible in the actual world, right? Yeah. So just kind of closing this off, the reason we see the original um, logical argument kind of fall apart, yeah. I'm, I I would say, comes down to one of two features. One, you actually have the reduc uh, rejection of say what I called earlier, Mackey's compatibilism, right? Uh -huh. Mackey's compatibilism being that God totally could have created a world in which there's both free will and no evil right yeah. if, as long as that's rejected then there's no like say issue here like why didn't god do that right and the answer right. here is just mackie's compatibilism is what he's asking for is absurd and all the other horn is to just say that 
the assumption that God must eliminate all evil is somehow, f- and that's where we get into like your um, okay. greater good theodicies and so on, right? right? Okay. Um, maybe God, maybe it's the case that God doesn't have to eliminate all evil right now, today, kind of deal, because there's something right. else going on, right? Okay, um, so then we can kind of summarize mm-hmm. the planting of free will defense as <clears throat> this lies under the scope of either a general libertarian free will mm-hmm. idea or um, kind of a, a Thomist idea of compatibilism, uh, basically a compatibilism which would not eliminate mm-hmm. moral evil. So in a, in a single line, what's happening is he's rejecting just one line. And he feel um, Plantinga says that this is implied in the problem of evil, and he's rejecting it. He's calling out right. and rejecting it. And that is, um, it was within God's power to create a world containing only moral good yeah. and free will. Right? Yeah. And, and that rejection causes this to fall apart and not be a logical problem, because that is a big right. assumption to be making. Right? God can actually create a world containing only moral good and free will. If that's rejected, then this is not a problem it appears to be. Right. Though some might argue otherwise, um, compatibilism is now on the rise, where a lot of people sign belief in it, into it. And my belief here is that it's going to actually reopen this kind of worms, because if you allow for compatibilism and if it allows a revival of that statement that God can create a, a world in which there's both some sense of free will and moral good, then we have this reopen. But for now, I think it's good for us to move on, yeah. because my appreciation here is that you're a much more sophisticated TS than for us to just stay on this point here yes i appreciate it and like i think the next gun to jump to here um Mm -hmm. is kind of a modified idea of skeptical theism and i i think Mm -hmm. the reason i would say it's modified is because it kind of diverts from the uh more classical proposed uh more pop culture-y apologetic skeptical theism that is commonly portrayed in um, you know, with William Lane Craig and um, uh, yeah. Rafi um, Zacharias, et cetera, Frank Turk. Although I would say Craig here is has become has has done more refinement on his skeptical theism, insofar as I'm not even comfortable calling it skepticism anymore. And so, if I could just like briefly lay this argument out, unless you want to kind of interject and say something. Yeah. Oh no, it's not that. I I thought maybe now would be a good time for me to present the evidential argument for. Uh, oh sure. Again, yeah. and, res- right? yeah. so, and I can certainly respond with with this argument. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. the logical the logical argument has revivals and so on. There's Oppie to look at or um or, or Gale, and I direct my audience to have a look at those. But what most of the trust, most of the revival in this debate has been what's called the av- evidential argument. And um, Roe presents a very nice version of this. So two premises. Uh, there exist instances of intense suffering which an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. So just saying that there, this is essentially just trying to highlight there are instances of uh, things that just uh, seem exorbitant, exorbitant, Gratuitous, things, unnecessary, right? and natural, and preventable. Yeah. yeah. And the second part is what is something that's called theological premise. It's actually important, but uh, it's an am- an omniscient, holy, good being would prevent the occurrence of any intense suffering. It could, unless it could not do so, without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil, equally bad or worse. So the idea, this evidential argument, really revolves around the sense of there being 
evils that don't serve any greater good. This helps to sidestep the earlier issue, right? So this isn't about a contradiction spurred on by how free will and moral good works. It's just the obser observation that there are evils in this world that seem excessive or unnecessary or serve no purpose, uh, no apparent purpose. And this leads then to the conclusion, what fits these observations is that there is simply no God, right? Um, that is why it is that we watch what we do, why we watch absorbed and evils occur, uh, occur. And then that's where your responses would be towards. And that's where modern theod uh, uh, responses to problem evil largely are today uh, against this. Yeah. And yeah, I appreciate you laying that out there. And I think Roe has a complicated formulation of the evidential problem. And I, I appreciate that he, uh, that Roe kind of approaches this from a deficiency standpoint. He mm -hmm. formulates the argument in such a way that, um, like, like clearly there are these gratuitous forms of suffering and evil which exist um in the world and that innocent people seemingly experience them and that god is the only explanation essentially besides uh, uh besides uh skeptical theism i think Roe posits is that like god's deficient in some way like the theist would have to commit to well god is Powerful, but not powerful enough to stop this form of suffering without some consequence and whatnot. So there's like different avenues mm -hmm. that theists can take from here. Uh, certainly deficiencies. Like, I think skeptical theism has really—it's it, kind of a contemporary position, and it kind of escapes the theodical approach to responding to the evidential problem of evil. And I think again, people like Craig and other contemporary theist uh, theist thinkers. I've really refined their wording, I would say, around the idea um, to to avoid the, um, the the title of skepticism. I think skepticism as a whole is is not a proper understanding of where the theist takes to a, where the theist um, wants to take this. Right. So let me just outline a few points here on what I would call a modified uh, skeptical the, uh, theistic response here. So. We're not really in a position to say with any confidence that God probably lacks sufficient reasons for permitting suffering in the world. God, in order to achieve his purposes, may have to allow a great deal of suffering along the way, which we may perceive as gratuitous or unnecessary suffering within our limited scope of understanding, meaning we have limited knowledge. So our perception may be skewed because God's way is ultimately different from our way. And this is biblically stated throughout the Old Testament. Uh, relative to the full scope of the evidence, and when I say evidence here, I'm not talking about scientifically or verifiable evidence um, uh, in regards to the scientific method. I'm referring to evidence as a demonstration of information, let's say, put forth as a cumulative case to really fend off this, this criticism of probability here. So relative to the full scope of evidence, God's existence may well be probable because probabilities are always relative to background information. So a good example of this is if we can look at a, uh, what, what seems to be a morbidly obese man, and the claims are that he is a world star athlete and that he is a multiple uh, winning champion in his respective sport, right? Uh, we wouldn't believe him for a second. This man's out of shape. This man's bent. But if we say that he's a sumo wrestler, we have new relative background information. Well, maybe that actually makes more sense now, right? So the idea is that 
we look at this man and judge him that there's no way he can be a world a world class athlete and has won multiple championships unless we have more relative background information um, to support the conclusion, right? And so I, I suppose my approach to this would be that what we would deem gratuitous evil and suffering, right? We're really in no position to posit that this is true, that, that it is gratuitous. There's no purpose or plan uh, uh, behind uh, God's will, like that, that God, like it, it's, we're just lacking sufficient understanding because our understanding and our knowledge is limited in this scope. Um, and, and when judging the probability of God's existence based on this, this, what we perceive to be gratuitous suffering and evil, right? And when we assign the term gratuitous, we're talking about purpose. It's purposeless, right? So we're assigning a, um, a purpose or lack of purpose to the suffering and evil. That's our judgment. But we're lacking sufficient judgment to really make a probability claim. And so what I would argue from here is that when you're looking to posit a probability to God's existence, and if you're, if you're, and if you're positing this probability solely on your lack of understanding or, or, or faulty perception of what you would consider gratuitous evil and suffering, based on what relative background information um, outside of this can you really provide, right? So it's, 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 not really, it's, it's more of a rhetorical question than that. I'm not really posing this towards you that you have to answer. It's just kind of a point, right? The point is that, and I'll summarize it and then you can respond. Mm -hmm. The point is that when we're addressing questions such as um, the, 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 the probability of God's existence or the logical coherency of God's existence, <clears throat> if we're positing that God's existence is very unlikely based on this perception of gratuitous evil and suffering that the theism points out, we're in no position to state with confidence that this is true, that it is gratuitous, but there's no purpose or plan behind it, that God cannot use evil and suffering to fulfill his plan. If, if, if the theist can point this out, then based on what other relative background information can we then continue to posit the claim of low probability in regards to God's existence. That's kind of the point, right? Hmm. For me, I don't this I don't find the skeptical TS defense compelling. And the problem is that I use um a version of Draper's hypothesis of indifference. So what happens is that instead of me looking to do this kind of whether God exists or not, I actually am starting to propose little limits on what the world is. This is where we go back to that metaphysics I mentioned at the start. Yep. So principle of indifference, simply stated, is that, uh, let me have a look at my notes, neither the nature nor the condition of sentient beings on earth is a result of benevolent nor malevolent actions performed by non-human uh, persons. It basically is just the assertion, like what I'm happening, how, what happens is when we both observe something occur, right? Uh -huh. We can choose to label it or not label it as gratuitous. But all that happens is that we still have, to some degree, a need to tie it into our metaphysical claims. My metaphysical claim is simply that there is no God. So this thing is, you know, if you were to watch, say, you know, there's a deer that suffers helplessly for days and dies in a forest fire, right? In mine, that's the result of an indifferent world. The world is largely indifferent, yeah. right? It's not aiming to achieve or not achieve anything. So that's, it lines up nicely. Yeah. And that's where we get into this issue of like the, that probability that you're talking about. I would almost 
argue that the probability falls very nicely towards an indifferent one. Uh, secondly, you have another problem. The skeptical tier's defense works against good uh, against uh, say evils. It also works against good things. Uh, whenever a tier's were to say something is good, I can actually use the skeptical tier's defense against that. I can say, well, in truth, you can't really recognize good in the same way you can't recognize gratuitous evil. Who's to say that this is something? Does that make sense? Um, we can't actually draw that inferential that, that connection because that skepticism erodes both our ability to detect good as it does our ability to detect uh, evil. Uh, I don't think that's that's true though. The second point in particular, mm -hmm. I think what you would have to do is you'd have to go down the direction of Wielenberg because if you're going to <clears throat> if you're going to formulate this this uh, this argument with the same premises, meaning that God is omniscient omnipotent and omnibenevolent i don't think there is any good reason we could find for being skeptical of god's goodness do you see what i'm saying you would have to take the route of wielenberg which is that god is omniscient omnipotent and omni um like all evil instead of all loving and all good all evil to the opposite yes. right um i think and, and there's definitely good uh responses and theodicies to that um, well i'm just that, that problem, i, I think but, Sorry. I don't yeah. think we can posit. No, it's fine. I, I just don't think we can posit skeptical. Uh, I don't think you turn the argument or the defense around and be skeptical of God's goodness if we're going to hold to the same premise. Oh, uh, what I'm saying is one can do that. You can imagine this mirror reflection, a problem of good for a malevolent yeah. God, right? And if someone were to say, hang on, there's this really good thing in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, isn't it nice that you know temperatures on Earth are great for human beings and relatively comfortable? Or that crime is falling on the whole globally, which yeah. it actually is. And this person, let's okay, let, I want to try and flesh it out. There is a Satanist. Okay, we we are debating an imaginary Satanist, right? Yeah. And you are outlining them. Well, look, I get that you believe in a malevolent God that's trying to ruin everything, but have a look at this: crime rates are falling globally. And they go, they look at you and they say, well, the thing is, I'm a skeptical Satanist. Uh, you know, I have a skeptical defense of this. And it goes along the lines of, you know, how are we to grasp the infinite malevolence with, a, with the human mind that is finite by nature? We, how is it that we can really identify the causes of action it is likely to take or not likely to take or even what it considers Malevolent. Maybe it actually considers this fallen crime somehow. This is part of that great evil plan. Does it make sense? There's this mirror reflection, yeah. this twisted are, mirror reflection. Are, are, that can't are be we defeated. are we going down the direction now that God would be omnipotent, omniscient, and omni um, like all evil? No, it's just that there's the skeptical T.S. defense has a weird feature of functioning for malevolent God as well. Like what happens is that whenever we see excessive evil there's the echo of that we can all imagine moments that are good miraculous right uh -huh. moments in which things go so wonderfully so we'd well be, we'd it's the opposite of all so we'd be skeptical of, of that. um of evil meaning that it's actually good see the, i think the problem yeah. with that is like the first the first problem i see is that really again under this view mm -hmm. uh, this you would have to provide a uh, a justification for there being some objective evil in the world and rather not with the theist posits which is a privation or good 
sorry, a privation of good or like a deficiency. So for example, like a tooth starts out um, healthy and it starts out as functioning and it starts out as, as being good. It has, mm-hmm. it has both properties of, um, its properties are inherently good, it has function, and then it can become deficient, meaning, you know, a cavity can form. And if you, you know, if you don't take care of it, the cavity becomes deeper. It's like, the point being is like, it's hard, I believe, to justify there being some objective standard of evil for which it's not dependent on good for its existence. Meaning like, if I was to say, you know, look at a knife, for example, is there anything inherently evil about a knife? Well, I would argue no, but a knife can be used for evil or it can be used for, for good. And so, yeah. like, certainly there's the... The, so the knife I, is inherently good, right? I concoct an imaginary god in which this god is aware of evil being a privation of good and mm-hmm. intentionally structures the world such that it results in a privation of good. So, well, you know, you, get, goodness, you, then. you are born... It, purposely, right? If you, if you were to, for some reason, imagine this malevolent, right? In order for it to create the evils it wishes to have, it would need to cast the light to have the shadows it wants, right? It would have to give you teeth that decay. It would have to uh, create fawns that then proceed to die slowly. Uh, you need to have good to then be deprived of the good for the evils yeah. to occur that it seeks. Um, and so I don't think of this as particularly strong because a malevolent god would still be able to leverage this. Uh, knowing that no shadows can exist without light simply means that this god casts light so that they can be shadows. I, I, I guess Does that make sense? It, it makes sense, but I guess I'm just questioning mm-hmm. like the, the foundations of this argument, right? Because it, are, we, are we positing that, that God is the source of goodness, therefore goodness is God's nature, but he has the capacity to act outside of his nature? Oh, so all we're positing here is a different god to yours, ostensibly, just for the th- sake of a thought experiment. One that wants what we could call malevolence, right? Its goal is that. That is its goal. Not, say, salvation or um, any, anything else. Like Its goal is right. specifically uh, kind right. of suffering, right? Right, but we haven't came across the justification for objective evil in which it would look to in order well, to exercise objective evil would not be the right term so this goes into another discussion that we're going to have someday objective evil will not be the right term only because good is god uh, right that's what so, i'm going so, to operate with so okay all so that could be god. said yeah all that would so be then, said is in some twisted way i'm just saying that greatest good in terms of this functioning of this particular divine entity yeah. is one in which suffering is maximized Right, See, and it's doing that, and then you're trying to rationalize it with the world in which we live, right? And so you might observe miracles, but then it could be defended from the perspective of saying, "Well, an infinitely uh, a being whose goal is maximal suffering, who has yeah. the infinite power and wisdom to uh, achieve that goal, can go about the task of infinite suffering in ways in which we may not appreciate it." So, so this instance of a miracle or good actually serves what to us humans and our moralities would be classed as evil. Though, if good is God, then strictly speaking, this suffering is just good. But trying to work at, with the best that our language can do, does this make sense? It, it doesn't. Like, I'm seeing logical incoherencies. What you're, the, you're, lingu- you're, that linguistic you're... incoherency. So, for a second, I'm going to just drop the word good. Good will just be 
good is God, it's the same thing to say. Right, it's anonymous. Right? That's However, my point, though, right, Midnight? It's like, mm-hmm. if, if, if you, so if this you is admit that, if you, if, you, if, you, if you grant that, mm-hmm. that good, or sorry, God is synonymous with good, mm-hmm. but then you're also positing that God would want to uh, create and exercise evil, mm-hmm. I don't see how that's logical. So it's not creating... Given so the, the mistake here is I'm not saying evil. I'm, I'm definitely, I've not said evil for a while yet. And, and I won't be saying evil. I'm just saying that its greatest good isn't, say, salvation. Its greatest good is deprivation, right? Uh, in the pursuit of that, um, so someone of this belief would say they have this God which deprives. Uh-huh. And its God which deprives would fit the world to some degree. But you might point out a miracle in which hey, this miraculous thing happened. You know, this person managed to feed countless others with not enough food, and that makes no sense, right? Why would this be able to occur? How does this miracle fit in okay. this God who's out to deprive? And all I'm saying is in this limited sense, I'm not talking about the great theology of this, because ultimately I'm, this is not a religion I have, but in, in a, just a limited sense, if you were to pose them the problem of good, right? Having pointed out a miracle, right? how, this miracle how does this miracle fit? Good exists in the world, how does it fit? They would say, well, Keep in mind, my God has infinite power and infinite wisdom, and you do not, right? Yeah, Meaning I, that your ability to question or your ability to say that this is actually a good thing is actually quite limited, and it might actually better, it might well serve this the malevolent goals of this God. I'm not saying that the greater theology here being proposed is great, like there, there are issues that we could definitely discuss, but it's hypothetical. Yeah, I, it's only that the skeptical tears and, and we are spending a lot functions. of time on this, and mm-hmm. like I, I guess. I understand what you're what you're trying yeah. like the thought experiment you're trying to play here. Mm-hmm. The, the the problem I'm having is like it seems like we're at a point now where we're just replacing good with mm-hmm. deprivation. So like basically, God we is synonymous to. with good, be, but instead cause... of good being salvation, good would be deprivation. And like mm. I, I don't see how this succeeds succeeds right. So yeah, if if God mm-hmm. exists and God is good, mm-hmm. whatever then God. Whatever the, whatever the good means is then what we adhere to, regardless of our understanding. So, so if, so if, it, what, it, if what it means to be good is deprivation, then we would want to seek deprivation. Right. Okay. I just don't so think this, the I thing don't, to I don't think this succeeds, right? The thing to work away from is I'm not trying to find it a, a like a robust god. I'm not trying to create a religion here. I'm just pointing out that were there were there a god that would be by somehow by some comparison to say the Catholic uh-huh. god evil, say its mirror image, right? Right. Forgetting the issues with its nature, so we're not trying to get into theology about its nature, yeah. because honestly, it's a non-existent religion, so there's no one there to defend it. All I'm saying is that if you were to go to someone who, for some reason, believes that, right? So this is a human being who acts as representative. This, not saying anything about the existence of this God. Actually, I don't think it exists. Right. But you're talking to someone who believes this faith in which neither of us actually do, and you say to them, "Hang on, isn't there a problem with the presence of good?" Yeah. Right, then they can actually deploy a skeptical defense of it in saying that, well, it appears good. However, you are trying to understand yeah. as a I, human being with limited capacities I, I, a the actions of an infinite being, and therefore. I, I think yeah. we are spending a little That's bit all. too much time on this, and like this goes, this this kind of goes into the roundhouse <laughs> of uh, Eric Wielenberg's divine deception, um, which is a response to skeptical theism. So, and I, I don't. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of talk about this and a lot of things I can respond with. But let's let's go into. Um, we're still on the. We're, I'll, I'll summarize. We're still on my, the I'll I'll just want to summarize. Then all I'm saying is that 
my issue with skeptical um, TS defense is it doesn't really, it doesn't carry true well in terms of defending a singular good god. It, it seems to be able you're, to be a, right. a strategy it, that can depend that can defend a variety of gods. It, it's not so a it's defense. A bit, you understand that, right? It's 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 say it's actually it's it's looking at the critique of mm-hmm. the moral um, problem of evil and suffering. Mm-hmm. Evidentially, it's looking at that and saying. Well, if you're going to criticize, um, or sorry, the critic would posit that there's, it's very unlikely that God exists given these, this problem. And what, what, the, uh, what the skeptical theist is attempting to do is not necessarily def- like provide a theodicy and defend against mm-hmm. this. It's just saying, well, you're holding with a high degree of confidence that your perception of what evil and suffering is yes. is somehow incompatible uh, with God's plan for providing uh, a greater good or for God's plan of us knowing yes. God. And, and therefore, because your perception, you can't hold your perception to a high degree of confidence in this matter. Mm-hmm. It's, not saying this, it's not saying the theist is necessarily committing themselves to this view. It's, it's, it's actually talking to the critic and saying, how are you able to substantiate uh, well, your perception on this, what you perceive to be evil and suffering, especially gratuitously, mm-hmm. as, 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 as either incompatible or unlikely that God can exist? The, like, these things are incompatible, and therefore God's existence is unlikely. But let's, let's move on here, because mm-hmm. um, we still have a lot to talk about. And I, I want to kind of go into what I call the greater good defense now. It's more of a theodicy. And it's, re- it's in regard to the evidential problem of evil and uh, the moral the moral yeah. problem, not the I natural problem. I'm just gonna definitely want to yep. revisit the skeptical tears point. Yeah, but uh, just to earmark it for everyone then. So that that was skeptical theism. Um, it, it basically just posits more or less that um, the factual part of the the evidential argument, the evidence and our interpretation of the evidence, could be flawed, and yeah, that can there, be taken no, many ways. So. There, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing that, there's, there's nothing, um, uh, given, given we can't hold with a high degree, with, with any confidence that our perception is correct on gratuitous evil and suffering. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the, there, there seems to be no incompatibility on the surface, at least, with uh, evil and suffering in God's existence, even as a prob- probabilistic claim. So let's, let's move. We can certainly get more into that. Um, I do oh think yeah, skepticism to... in ways prevails but yeah yeah just earmark it so we have the we have the evidential argument and i'm just looking to earmark this right we have the evidential argument skeptical tears defense basically eats into the evidence says the evidence is isn't the evidence the greater good theodicies which seven will talk to us about in in brief um is really interesting in that they don't they don't just look at the evidence and say you can't make the inference yeah you you thought you could from it Mm -hmm. They say that you are making yes. so it's less probabilistic. It's much more definitive as a response. And, and keep in um, mind, our, our first episode here is is uh, I, I think in future episodes we might construct this in a way where we're doing more our own commentary and going back and forth. Mm-hmm. But I really like how in this first episode here we've we've more structured this in a way where we're giving we're providing an educational experience for those who may not be well acquainted with with the philosophy of religion or religion. Sure. Um, arguments because these are these are arguments and thoughts and formulations from prominent religious and irreligious and atheistic thinkers so it's, it, these are these are this is definitely a, a good um conversation we're having here 
So here's kind of my take or my version or my understanding of uh, this is more of a Catholic, um, has more of Catholic origins as a theodicy to the problem of evil and suffering evidentially. Um, and I'm going to kind of uh, speak some points here. And I want to go into a couple um, really poetic and I think key quotes from two prominent uh, religious thinkers, one contemporary and one um, ancient. So the the, the the theodicy for a greater good really does rely on um, an understanding of Christian doctrine. And there's really three points to this. I'm going to point out three um, areas of Christian doctrine, which I can then um, uh, confidently make this theodicy with. So under Christian doctrine, um, the purpose of our existence, the purpose of our life is to simply know God, which brings true lasting fulfillment. Suffering can bring about a deeper and more intimate knowledge of God even on the part of the one who's suffering and those around him. Um, so basically the idea is uh, that if, if the purpose, uh, given Christianity, the purpose of our existence, the purpose of our life, etc., is not what we would commonly perceive as uh, subjective happiness, that, you know, um, things in our life which makes us happy, which makes our lives, um, in a sense, uh, excel forward, um, whether it be material or political or, you know, things such as family and friends, whatever the case may be, whatever we understand, again, with our limited scope of knowledge as happiness, which would then, you know, benefit our well-being, uh, that is not the purpose. God does not wish to comfort us and make us his pets. So uh, the goal or the, the purpose of our existence is to know God. And it's it's not only... Un, it's not only uh, it's not that it's not only unlikely, but it's, it's actually varied. The Christian expects suffering and, and evil in the world, given free will, but also that suffering is used by God to bring us into a more d- deeper and more intimate knowledge of God, um, even on the part of the sufferer or the ones around him. So, um, and, and just a little, and again, this is a correlative example. Um, the countries in the world who often experience the most natural disasters and famine, um, incredible poverty, um, et cetera, uh, tend to be the most uh, religious. And also, statistically, it's, it's, it's interesting that these same countries also happen to have the, the, uh, an incredible um, growth rate for Christianity. Um, and, and so it's not really necessarily an argument um, some kind of uh, statistical or evidential argument. It's more just a interesting fact on correlation. Uh, continuing on, um, so that's the first the first doctrine really is that <clears throat> that our the purpose of our existence is to know God, not for subjective happiness. Uh, second point on doctrine is that mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and His purpose. Terrible evils are a testimony to man's dep- uh, depravity, a consequence of his alienation from God. The Christian isn't surprised at moral evil or suffering in the world. Rather, he expects it. Uh, third point is that God's purpose is not restricted to life, but spills over beyond the grave into eternal life. So uh, the nature of original sin um, is oriented away from God's will for our life. We're in a constant state of rebellion. And so because we're depraved, because we're alienated from God, we expect to see evil and suffering in the world. Not, we're, we're not surprised by it. We think it's not only compatible but it, we expect it as Christians. Uh, we expect it not only to bring us into a more intimate and deep relationship with God, 
upon our endurance and understanding of the suffering, the impact and the implications of the suffering in our life as a means for growth in God's love, but also that evil and suffering in the world, um, even if brought about by our own doing, um, is a uh, necessary part of our Christian faith and carrying our cross and coming to know God. And kind of the last point really interesting that, again, God's purpose and will for our life is not restricted to our material, physical lives. Rather, the purpose spills over beyond the grave into eternal life. So not everything that we perceive as beneficial for our well-being will play into this life. So we may say, I don't understand how God could have permitted this, this situation to occur in my life. This does not benefit my well-being. Well, our well-being extends beyond our personal, intimate, physical life. It spills over into the eternal. So that's kind of um, the general outlined argument here. And I want to give two quotes. The first is from a um, deceased but pro- prominent contemporary uh, philosopher and uh, author and Christian thinker, uh, C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so what he's talking about here is the how God utilizes um, pain and suffering to speak to a deaf world who abandons God speak to a deaf world who lives for themselves, that upon seeing others suffer, upon our own suffering, we can come to an acknowledgement of God's involvement in our lives. Uh, the second quote is from an early Christian father and writer, uh, St. Paul. He says, we do not lose heart, for the slight momentary affliction is preparing us for, sorry, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is a man who endured uh, starvation, uh, being whipped, uh, crucifixion. Um, This was a man who dealt with almost every uh, incredible and almost seemingly humanly unbearable form of pain and suffering possible in his day. And yet what uttered out of his mouth was, we do not lose heart. And he says, for this slight momentary affliction, I mean, that's not just a slight affliction, right? But his, his heart is in God's hands, right? He, he understands that this life is temporal. He understands that the pains and suffering in this life are nothing compared to the glory of God in heaven. So that's kind of two interesting quotes and a little bit of an outline, a long-winded outline on um, the greater good. That God, uh, Christian doctrine, basically the point is that uh, Christian tradition, oral tradition, sacred scripture, and sacred magisterium, Christian tradition, um, is completely harmonious with evil and suffering in the world, and the Christian expects it, rather. So, I'm wondering about aspects of what you said. What you outline is that um, suffering, well, God has, the greater good here is us forming a relationship with God. That's right. But, can and it knowing really... Us. Yeah, can it really be said that all suffering that exists, right, exists to bring us uh, towards God? It, it seems like there there's suffering that occurs, uh, and I give example of that of that deer who dies in the forest by itself. Where it's not clear how that suffering brought me like brings any of us closer to God. How a deer? You said a deer what suffering? Uh, in the suffering woods? suffering in the woods, right? Um, you know, got caught in a forest fire, for example. Yeah. Well, this, this, this kind of now uh, goes into natural evil and mm. suffering. 
Um, yes. And so what I would argue there is, let me get to my notes here real quick, because um, there is an actual interesting point on that. Okay. So um, what I would say to that is that God wants his creation to have its own integrity, meaning that when God creates animals um, and the natural world, right, that, and he assigns the laws and constants and allows for his creation to be self-governing, um, of course, God sustains all things through his being but rather he gives his creation, his natural creation, its own integrity. That God lets nature unfold according to its own rhythm. That this is a free and natural process. And so the natural and free process of, let's say, a natural forest fire starting, we perceive this as, well, not good. In, in a sense, it's evil. And the suffering that it inflicts on an innocent and poor deer is a simple natural process. <clears throat> now, it's like, it's to say that God intervenes in his natural process on every possible whim in order to prevent a uh, the suffering of an innocent animal uh, again i don't think at this point we're really delving deep into the argument um i would say that the, the natural process and creation of the world in the first place is good and that god doesn't seek to undermine his own creation and the natural processes given to it um in, in order to prevent the suffering of let's say a deer right Okay, I understand. This this is close to what I know of uh, C.S. Lewis myself, and so it's the uh, is natural law theodicy that they're being free will theodicy and soul making theodicy. But natural law is fascinating as well, um, and this is just that you know, God must situate personal beings within some kind of natural order, constituted yeah. by non-personal objects behaving according to their own properties and powers. Basically, God creates a natural world and yeah. largely keeps it intact without meddling in it too much. And that natural evils are byproducts of the working natural system. Yeah. But this invites two problems. One, this is still an omniscient and omnipotent God. Uh -huh. So it's sort of like when it sets this clock in motion, it still be aware that it set this clock in motion. The, the actions of this natural world would be alien to it, nor surprising. Uh -huh. So this would be natural evils that are still ascribable to the clockmaker because it is of right. the clockmaker's design. Secondarily, and perhaps more importantly, is why could he have not made a better system? Knowing that us humans have already intervened upon natural order to improve it for ourselves. So we know that natural you know that a better world is possible. It's not hypothetical. It's definitely possible. We have done it. So why well, not ba based on based on what, right? If you're oh, if, if you're going to use it, of... if you're going to use an internal example of our world's better now than it was then, well, we're still living in the same world. God gave us human capacity so, to create advanced medicine and create advanced technology. Right. right? Um, a simple a simple example I'd give would be the eradication of smallpox. Right? We yeah. went in and removed something from natural existence that was there before. Right? But so too could have God. Like there's not nothing. There's nothing that we could uh, say drive extinct that god could not have driven extinct before okay. us right so now we're getting into like um, that god created a, a deficient design right yes um, oh at he least could have created a design well here's the thing right god could have created a design mm -hmm. that didn't include smallpox and natural diseases etc is that true though like given the goodness of god's creation the fact that it's inhabitable right is it pop do we do can we again can we say with confidence that we can, that we know well, that God could have created a a better world with less diseases, etc. I mean, how would how would we know that? If so, what if what if like so like for example, like certain bacteria and viruses and diseases? I mean, these are just natural consequences right. of, of 
organisms so this, evolving. That right? just goes back into the clockworker, uh, clockmaker argument that I made, right? God is still a clockmaker and not a blind one. So right. Darwin, I, I'm I'm an atheist, and by all means, I yeah. take Richard Dawkins' view of a blind watchmaker, right? So that yes, smallpox exists, but it's a blind watchmaker. Yeah, deism, so there's nothing right? to a non-personal. Deism. However, yeah. Well, the blind watchmaker is has no intent at all. So right. it. There's a process right. that makes a thing, but that process doesn't have intent. But yeah. a god is not blind. That's distinctly not one of its properties. Right. In fact, the property that's relevant here is omniscience, awareness of the resultant of building a clock. This way. You know, we can think of God in, in most theistic... Uh, I'm not aware of any Catholic traditions that do otherwise, but virtually all of them, God is the perfect watchmaker. You know, like there's no accident to any of the design, any part of the design. Yeah. So either it is the case that, I mean, it has to be the case that the smallpox was foreseen. It wouldn't be outside of God's knowledge, right? That wouldn't make sense. Uh, 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 so in, in response to like the, the, the deficient design argument, again, I just think this is impossible for the skeptic to sustain. Here, here's why, right? Again, we would have to posit mm -hmm. that we would have the knowledge, that we could, we could understand a world. And again, like objectively, we could understand a world which would be less deficient than this one which meaning oh. again if we can if we can posit real quick mm -hmm. if we could posit that to be a world for example with less diseases so that we wouldn't have to um you know there millions of people wouldn't have to die because of you know smallpox or some other you know plague and like oh it's, it's because of humans that we've um developed this medicine so we don't have to suffer this anymore but we're always suffering some kind of problem so the point mm -hmm. is like if we're going to say that like Ah, it would be the elimination of diseases that would be a less efficient design. Oh, well, then so again, this... how, how, then how are we going to deal with the problem of evolution, right? So, like, we'd have to eliminate evolution. Here's, here's an interesting point real quick, though. Yep. It's next to impossible for us to ever read into the full consequences of an act or event. So it's like right. we may say on the surface, ah, this cancer, this bone cancer mm -hmm. that this child has, objectively horrible. She shouldn't have gone through it. God permitted it. It's evil and suffering. It's impossible for us to read fully into the, the full consequences of an act or event. You know, and, and let me, if I could just give a quick illustration, this is a famous uh, Chinese legend, and I think it really does brilliantly illustrate this point. So, mm -hmm. there's a Chinese farmer, and he has a horse that he's tamed, and the horse one day runs away. And his friends gather and say, Oh, no, that's terrible. That's terrible luck that your horse ran away. He says, he says oh, We'll see. All of a sudden, one day the horse comes back and he brings back two more horses with him. So there's three horses, one horse for him and his two friends. And they say, oh, that's great news. That's great luck um, that your horse back brought back, not only came back, but brought back two more horses. He says, we'll see. Yep. Well, then one of his friends gets on the horse and they're all riding and the friend falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And he says, and then he says, oh, that's terrible luck that that happened. And then again, the Chinese farmer says, we'll see. So like the point is like we make these judgment calls uh, and this can continue on and on and on, like ad infinitum, right? So, like, so, the point is, we make these judgment calls without understanding or having the knowledge of the consequences mm. of the acts of events so into the me, future. Except, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Though, for me, it results in one of two outcomes, right? If yeah. it is the case that I have to look at the world and I have to say, I can't tell if this is good or bad, then this yeah. spreads and I don't know if the world is good or bad as a whole, right? Because there's no, for any given instance, I don't know if cancer is good or bad. I don't know if a miracle is good or bad. Like everything starts to crumble, and I have no basis on which to say, 
hey, the world is a good place. I can't do that from this basis. I can only do it if there's a way of reasonably, like, you know, there's a reason, there's a way for someone to be reasonably certain that the world is good, the world is bad, that this is good, that this is bad, then we can talk about these things. Uh, and that's my issue with a skeptical type approach. The second is this. While it is the case that we aren't perfect watchmakers, this is no argument against a god being a perfect watchmaker. Because a god is a perfect watchmaker, right? It it has omniscience, it has omnipotence, right? Omnipotence is the ability to do everything that is logically possible, and right. omniscience is the ability to know everything that it is right. possible to know. And so, and these attributes combined mean that it, when God makes a watch, it's different to us making a watch. When I make a watch, it could break down very much so. Uh, some unintended consequence of the system, right. I misplace a spring. God doesn't. So, have vulnerability to this uh, again god, god ways god's way is different from our way mm -hmm. and uh, we, we we often lack the confidence in god's way even if we have knowledge of it it's like again i just think it's a, it's a, it's near to impossible for the skeptics to sustain the position that we can we can um identify hypothetically a less efficient world i think that we in which god can still fulfill his his plan and again, if, if, the, if, the, if the Christian worldview is true, and that the purpose of our existence in the first place is to know God, you would have to then adopt that and sustain that there's a, there's a, a, a hypothetical world that we mm -hmm. can imagine less efficient and fulfills God's purpose more efficiently. I think that's just impossible. I want to get close to closing off. I've got to leave soon. Uh, yeah. and, and, and before I get there, I actually want to mention my favorite response. I actually have one that I can recommend, but I'll get to in a moment. All I would close is just that it's that watchmaker type argument that I would give against this, and and and, and you keep saying that you know we can't imagine one. I can. Like it's every time we've eradicated something, right? It's not how we make the world more. It's actually how we take something out of existence. But, and but again, like that do, is that would be your that, perception of a better world. But given given well, Christianity, given theism, how how could we how could we say with confidence again that eradicating X or Y disease would bring us into a more intimate and fulfilling relationship with God or knowledge of God. I would argue that suffering is one of the primordial ways mm -hmm. in which we come to knowledge of God in the mm -hmm. first place. You eliminate this, and how do you know we have a better world? I would say it's, the world is a better say. place. Even, but... under your, even under your own perception, even of what you prioritize as better, I how don't do you think... even know with confidence that this would be true, given mm -hmm. less diseases of X and Y and Z? Well, if I can kind of close out with a Swinburne response sure. to sure, sure, natural sure. evil... Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting theodicy here, and Swinburne, uh, Richard Swinburne, is a professor of philosophy, uh, yep, philosophy yep. of religion at Oxford, and he posits that in regards to the problem of natural evil and suffering, that natural evil is not to be accounted for along the same lines as moral evil. Its main role, rather, I suggest, says, this is a quote, is to make it possible for humans to have the kind of choice which the free will defense extols. Quote, second part i quote there are two ways in which natural evil operates to give human uh free choices first the operation of natural laws producing evils gives humans knowledge of how to bring about such evils themselves and second natural processes alone give humans knowledge of the effects of their actions without inhibiting their freedom and if evil is to be a possibility for them they must know how to allow it to occur so basically the idea is that for humans to understand how to exercise um, how to bring about evil and suffering in the first place, they would have to know 
the effects of evil. They would have to end up an understanding of the effects of evil and suffering mm-hmm. in order to in order to uh, deliberate a deliver sorry in order to deliver a plan to carry this out. And so what he argues is that net, natural what we would perceive as natural evil and suffering as a natural process is essentially necessary for one to um, be able to understand the implications of a good or evil effect or what suffering is. If if someone, you know, uh, naturally injures their leg and they seem to be in pain and suffering, that we would then understand that when we damage someone's leg, um, that, that we can cause them pain and suffering. And if pain and suffering uh, deliberately causing that is evil, then we would now have an understanding of how to carry this out. Hmm. So, so I, I would... Argument. So I would go for Trakasis Trakakis. Ah, my God, his name is awful. Response to it, right? And it's <laughs> no just knowledge. Of, yeah, knowledge of how to commit moral evil does not yep. necessitate um, inference from natural evils. Um, only because God has already communicated us through other means to confer knowledge. So we know that knowledge can be conferred through prophet to prophets, but real and false, and so on, right? It, God's capable of communicating with us in more than just the natural realm. But I, w- I really do want to get to my weird response, my weak thing of highlighting some new directions in theodicy. Uh, and I'm not sure. sure if you are or aren't aware of them. There's process theodicy, which is unique and new. And oh, what these do, right, is so we earlier described the evidential argument against God. And yeah. these are attacks on uh, is there even evil? Right. These right. essentially will strip that away and say, well, there is no evil, right? right. In the first place, the, the entire thing falls apart. There's no right. evil here. And, and, or and, and, like some greater good is uh, and, and real right? quick, real but, quick, I would again mm-hmm. I, I don't think I ever made this clear in this conversation. Yeah. I, I wouldn't maintain that, that evil exists in the world. Rather, mm-hmm. what we experience and perceive as evil or suffering is essentially a consequence of the privation of God's goodness. That God is synonymous with good and if we're depriving ourselves yeah. of God's goodness, then we are engaging in, you know, this this perception of evil and suffering, essentially. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the the greater good theodicies, they attack the first branch. There's actually an attack on the second branch, and these are unique and bizarre. They're like, you look at 1980s, 1990s. These are created around my birth, actually. Yeah. Uh, some are younger still. Process theodicy um, says that God actually doesn't have much coercive power to begin with. So when we talk about omnipotence, God can't actually coerce all that well. What God has is persuasive power, the ability to try and convince you, right, to form a relationship with him. So God's trying to convince you as opposed to trying to coerce you. That's the nature of what's happening. And it's because of this focus on persuasion over coercion that natural evils occur because he's not using as much force as you might expect, right? So it's a limitation on right. omnipotence. Right, freedom of the will. Right, exactly. Like there, there would be a level. Like you and I would probably agree. Mm-hmm. Without direct coercion, there probably could exist a level of persuasion. Let's say. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to use the word persuasion, but let's go along with it. Yeah. There yeah. could probably be a level of persuasion that would like borderline coerce in ways on freedom. Mm-hmm. I, I would, I would use the way. I would use the word that like. Sorry, I would use the term more of like God invites us into a relationship with, with Him. God. Uh, gives us knowledge of moral goodness and his, of, his yeah. exi- his, so, sorry, of his existence through natural processes, through natural mm-hmm. creation, through conscious, etc. So, so, what yeah. makes these two special is just that they're offering. These are these are the most radical of the theodicies that exist. They look right. at from the evil, look at from evil, and they actually straight up surrender on the omnifi. Process yeah. theodicy surrenders omnipotence. 
This mm-hmm. is a lesser god who cannot eliminate evil. And because he right. cannot eliminate evil, he does what else, the only other thing he can, which is attempt to persuade people to be away from you, to form a relationship with it, and so on. And it's an interesting pursuit uh, in Griffin, and so on. My favorite, yeah. though, is open theism. Open theism oh, doesn't okay. yeah. reject... Oh, you're familiar? With I'm familiar with all of these, yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't yeah. reject... Um, the only features are still there, but they critique a small assumption that we tend to make, and that is God is always using all of his power all the time. Right. To an open theist, there is a world, there is a natural world, and it's been made by God, true. But God hasn't really attempted to apply omnipotence or omniscience to it. This means that some evil exists, um, but that's fine. Most fascinating part of this is that this goes back to something we haven't really discussed, but, but moral evil, right? Yeah. Instead of natural evils, they address more of the moral They don't really address natural evil much. No one ever yeah. did. Or they real reframe quick. it. And on, on open theism, the reason I wouldn't exercise or use that argument is mm-hmm. because, like, I'm I'm personally a Thomist, and so like my belief is that um, on creation and, and uh, on on creation and evil, et cetera, is that like that when God when God created the world, mm-hmm. that God's holy and always involved in the world, and not only is he involved in the world because God is ipsum esse, meaning the being itself, that if the universe is a being or a form of existence then it is a part of God, and ultimately God, in order for anything to be, continuously sustains it through his creation. So like, I would, I would have to reject that principle, mm-hmm. or that teaching, or that belief, and I'm just not comfortable doing yeah, that, necessarily. Um, if I can leave off on like two quick little... Oh, they're, I, not, they're more notes, they're not really... I'm hoping you just points, complete my description of open theism, that's all. Um, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you weren't done. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, that's fine, that's fine. The yeah. fascinating, most fascinating kind of consequence of open theism is with God not exercising its full ability yeah. uh, and and new limitations. So um, and they and they get new limitations. So God isn't exercising its full ability, hence some flaws. Um, uh-huh. And they're capable of admitting that the world is good, but not the best. Like that's not a defeater to them. They're immune to this. Then it's fine because God never exercised its full ability in the first place. Right. Secondarily, uh, their analysis of libertarian free will is fascinating in that they not only hold that it is logically impossible to have both. Uh, free will and moral good it's actually impossible for God to even know the choices made by a libertarian free creature before it makes it because it's impossible to know that between these two arguments they have an explanation for natural evil and for moral evil God doesn't actually know what decision you're going to make before you make it meaning that it's not responsible it can never be held responsible it's like asking you to be responsible for a dice roll I can't like it's not your fault if it rolls a one it just rolled a one on its own kind of deal. And I think this blends very well together because then you have a God that's unusual. It, it is unusual. It's really kind of rebellious and out there for a theodicy, but it is fascinating in its consequence because this is very resistant to natural evils. Yeah. And when it comes to human beings, it suggests that the, the whole problem with evil is this kind of, why does God make a world that's so awful when it's so good? And to an open theistic frame god never exercises its full power in the first place and secondarily it has actual limitations right Our omnipotence implies limits that mean that some of what you're asking is just impossible in the first place even for a god yeah there, there was a is a professor of um uh, philosophy and religion <clears throat> um named richard rice who actually in the 80s i believe uh wrote a uh 
uh, published work called The Openness of God. Also, I know Richard Swinburne also is an advocate of open theism, and it's interesting. It, it's more of an evangelical tradition, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I just, uh, under my views of Thomism, it, it just, it's an incoherent idea to That's me. That's fine. But um, I, I appreciate, yeah. And no, it's interesting. We can certainly discuss it sometime. Mm-hmm. I do want to mention, like, two notes here before we close. Um, I often notice that, like, when we're, when we're talking about this problem, we tend to put an overemphasis on natural and and uh, natural evil and suffering, um, in particular, without really looking at uh, the natural good, and um, which 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 exists. And so, like with respect to natural good, which I would argue is overwhelming in comparison to natural evil and suffering, given my expectations of of evil and suffering, I think it's 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 kind of um, even as a, as a skeptic or a critic. Um, of theism it, it is um, I'm surprised that we can never fully address or come to an agreement on the overwhelming amount of natural good and flourishment that exists in comparison to evil and suffering and so this kind of goes back to my point on relative background information that if you're going to focus on the, the problem of evil and suffering evidentially in terms of a probabilistic argument and make your case for the for God's existence being highly unlikely based on that it's like based on what relative background information if you're certainly going to um completely ignore natural good and, and flourishing which exists i think it's it's kind of um uh, it's kind of un- undercutting uh the entire picture and then the last note i have is um while natural evil uh like you know tsunamis for example may cause human suffering uh, at the same time they may permit the flourishing of other species so we're considered a species of animals under the you know biological theory of evolution and so if we're going to look at for example um and, and this is this is particular per, uh this is a, a particularly pertinent under your view uh midnight which is that like human suffering may occur at the same time in which marine life for example under a tsunami uh may flourish given what we would perceive as natural evil or suffering you know tsunami hits and wipes out mm-hmm. a thousand islanders well marine life may flourish in regards to this and so even under my view it, it's an interesting note to to, to posit because or, or to bring up let's say because um it, it 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 does kind of and maybe i'll develop this further actually in the future but it does kind of raise question to when we're positing um evil and suffering under our perception we're, we're most likely addressing it with an attitude of objectivity and so if we can say that there's examples in which other life forms or species would flourish under the conditions of evil and suffering, given our perception, then I, I think there may actually be problems if we can raise enough significance with these examples. Um, and so it's just an interesting note I'd like to develop maybe in the future. For but me, yeah. such examples are like, um, I keyed this in earlier, but just, just that principle of indifference. I do believe that we live in a largely in- world the only things that are not indifferent are humans and animals are similar to us in cognition these things can be rather social and and i think that humans like to me history is largely a tale of us making better of a world that is quite rough on us Um, many of us have died to fairly miserable conditions um the world seems indifferent bordering on hostile for the most part and then human beings have kind of trudged through it and 
made the best of, made lemonade out of lemons. And I do need to close this off, but yeah, I think you've left us on a great point for future discussions about yeah. um, you know, is the world indifferent and so on. And I think we've done a pretty good job of yeah. what we most I, stances. I feel for our first real go around here, we've mm -hmm. uh you know, we we've covered quite a bit. I've certainly gone I feel comfortable um with, with the points that we've mentioned and kind of going through um different different responses and, and i think it was a good mixture of both educational and and our own personal commentary because we did both present like multiple different uh, responses from both contemporary and historical thinkers uh respectively both on the theistic and atheistic side um as well as kind of give our own perspective mm -hmm. and you know shed some commentary on it as well so i think it was a really first uh, our first go around was really successful and i you know i appreciate everyone who tunes in and listens to this um and i thank you midnight for not only hosting but um uh being a good interlocutor and, and being a good friend so uh, yeah many many future discussions to come thank you okay i think i'm closing off here if um i haven't yet figured out how we're going to go about taking in uh say viewer comments yet but right whatever whatever platform this ends up on if you do leave a comment in that platform i'll probably get around to it and maybe even mention it the next episode. I'm more than happy to make this a more dynamic, free-flowing thing where with responses to yeah. our listeners. And yeah, we'd love in the future if there's a way for listeners to, um, you know, leave suggestions in particular. Do you feel like the, like, do you feel like these are too long? Do you feel like they can be condensed? Do you feel like they should be more structured or less structured? Uh, any comments or questions, concerns, uh, we'll find a way for you guys to communicate with us and then we can reach back and, you know, answer specific questions or respond to comments and yeah.